0: Research in youth mental health is critical. Youth are 25% of our population, but they're 100% of our future. So we need to invest in them in all areas.
1: And without frequent quality play experiences, um, children's mental health, their socio-emotional health, their physical health, all of those developmental milestones are gonna be compromised.
2: As Canada continues to deal with the effects of COVID-19, concerns over the critical importance of the early years and the impacts on kids are growing. For children, the pandemic has presented a unique set of challenges to their development and mental health. Public health measures have interrupted children's ability to socialise during important developmental stages, causing worry over potential generational scarring for years to come. Welcome to Beyond Research, a podcast brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. In this episode, you'll hear from researchers specialising in children's mental health and development, each who will share unique insights on the status of children and families' mental health throughout the pandemic. Specifically, you'll learn about a growing area of research that is proven to be a critical support for children and youth during this difficult time the power, of play.
0: Intervening for children and youth uh, early and uh, in terms of mental health is probably one of the most effective ways we can help with mental health in our population. Because, you know, often uh, mental illnesses or even mental health struggles happen in the early years. We know that three quarters of mental illnesses will start before someone's 24. So the earlier we can get to someone and help them, the better they're going to do and the less milestones uh, they're going to miss.
2: This is Dr. Alexa Bagnall, Chief of Psychiatry at the IWK Health Centre, a pediatric hospital in Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Professor of Psychiatry at Dalhousie University. In her role at the IWK, Alexa has had a unique first-hand view of the impacts COVID-19 has had on youth and children's mental health and well-being.
0: So since the onset of the pandemic at the IWK, we've been monitoring our data pretty closely because we didn't know what to expect, to be truthful. Uh, When the pandemic hit, I think all of us were a bit in shock even, and we didn't see a huge increase in admissions at that time. In fact, if anything, there was a slight decrease, but not not dramatic. So we followed that through the course of this year and was staying relatively stable into the fall, which we didn't fully expect. We thought it might increase in the fall with back to school, but it was close to what the past five years have looked like in terms of back to school. And then in November, December, we started to see an increase uh, in emergency department presentations and crisis calls. Uh, The demands on our outpatient appointments started to increase and that really continued into the spring. You know, we also aren't fully sure of all the reasons for that, but I think all of us can understand pandemic fatigue, uh, the stress, and that it was going on longer than I think many of us had expected. And so people do well for a period of time and showed a lot of resilience. But for some, it was was getting longer and harder and there was more stresses with school and uncertainty. So we saw an increase in that. That
2: trend has continued. It's important to note But in November 2020, Nova Scotia was entering its second wave of the virus, and its capital city and surrounding metropolitan area went into another lockdown. Though Alexa wasn't surprised when the increase in emergency department visits and crisis calls occurred at this time, there was something unexpected appearing in the data.
0: What's interesting is that our admissions have not changed. So if you compare people needing to come into hospital, which would be our children and adolescents who would be the most ill, that hasn't changed uh, through this year compared to previous years. Why do we think that people were presenting more to the emergency department, more distress uh, in, the, in the population? And why didn't the admissions rates increase Uh, in a corresponding way and we've really looked at the data and it seems that people are more in crisis so more distress but not actually an increase in mental illness so more crisis presentations and those kids and families need support but they don't uh, necessarily need hospitalizations.
2: Alexa and her team cannot provide a definitive explanation for the spike in visits not translated in admissions as they're still collecting and analysing data. But they do have some pretty good theories.
0: You know, most kids in a regular year will be going to school, doing extracurricular activities, seeing their friends, having a pretty regular routine in their day. Not as much time to think about other things because they have a lot of things they have to think about in school, outside of school, getting to and from school. And so their routine is pretty stable, and they have things that they use to cope and so in terms of managing stress and things, they have their ready-made tools and everyone finds their own in terms of how to how to cope with the different stresses in their life. With the pandemic, a lot of those coping mechanisms were gone uh, from public health reasons due to the virus. And that left people with some, you know, some increased stress and maybe anxiety and other things where they didn't feel that they, ha- that they could cope as well.
2: According to Alexa, this understanding that kids were struggling to cope with the dramatic changes in their routine was an essential reason behind the province's push to keep kids in school as much as possible.
0: So during the pandemic, we knew that the best place for kids to be would be in school in terms of their mental health. But we're always balancing that with the public health recommendations of where in the pandemic we are, what's the risk for... Uh, kids uh, and their families and kids coming back in terms of the virus. And as soon as we were able to, in our province, I think we really worked towards having kids back in school. And there's a lot of reasons why that's so important for their mental health.
2: As someone with school-aged kids, when I think about their education in school, I immediately start to think about the stuff they're learning from their actual teacher, the kind of books they're reading, the tests they're taking. But of course, there is so much more to it than just that. As Alexa will point out, school offers an environment for many learning opportunities that go well beyond a teacher's lesson plan.
0: So social is sometimes challenging for some kids, but it's important. So there's the positives of being around your friends, but there's also the social-emotional development that happens by being around your peers and navigating that and having those experiences on a day-to-day basis. And that is really important for our neurodevelopment, our mental health, and the loss of that over time is really hard on kids. And some kids, like, they they lose skills. So some kids, that kind of comes naturally, and they stop it, and then they come back, and it's not a big deal. But for some, it's, you know, the social part is challenging, and they can lose skills being out of that environment. And then that makes them feel more isolated, and it can negatively impact their mental health. So we knew that part was really important, too. And, you know, social also creates really positive neurochemical release in our brain, not to get into the neurochemicals, but it really is a mood enhancer. And so we also know that those activities, being around friends, being in the school, uh, are all sort of boosters to our mood, whereas sitting in a room in front of a screen all day with no contact or just just family checking in on you is not the same, and you, you don't get the same boost to your mood.
2: Though critical for the healthy development of all children and youth, Alexa notes that the social and physical support provided by school and extracurricular settings plays an especially important role in supporting kids who are considered at risk or in more vulnerable circumstances.
0: The pandemic has not impacted everyone equally. And in many ways, it's actually shown much more of the disparities Uh, In our province, in terms of access, supports, uh, financial, racial, it really has, I think, enunciated uh, that it is not an even playing field. And so we see kids who have different needs that might not be able to be addressed at home uh, because they need some specific supports, like within the school, and then not being able to access those in the same way. Although I think schools did try very hard, they were very limited by what was a, what they were able to provide uh, during the pandemic in terms of in-person uh, services. So getting back to school was huge for those kids, especially kids who have uh, developmental needs that really at home for a, fa- a busy family or a single parent are pretty hard uh, to put in place. And also, you know, parents were trying often to work, to teach, <laughs> to look after kids. And that is, you know, one of those jobs is huge, trying to put all those together with your own stress, and then possibly financial stress. Uh, It made it made it really challenging for some families. And then we have this idea that everyone has some sort of quiet space in their house. Well, that isn't the reality for many families and kids. So if they're all sharing the same space, and then trying to do all, all things together, and then the stress level, uh, in in a house uh, can be really difficult. And then we also assume that homes are always the safe place and sometimes school is a safe place uh, for kids so there are a lot of factors that I think we knew about before the pandemic but really came to the forefront during the pandemic as uh, an unequal playing field for for kids.
2: The reduction in access to supports and the obvious unequal playing field described by Alexa has been noted by organizations around the world. UNICEF has reported that every key measure of childhood progress has gone backwards, with reported increases in the number of children who are isolated, anxious, and living in poverty, and a notable decrease in children's access to learning environments, socialization, essential services, health, nutrition, and protection. As we move forward in our collective recovery, continued research in the area of early childhood development will be imperative.
0: Research in youth mental health is critical. I can stop right there. Post-pandemic is going to be even more important in terms of really understanding what's been going on. But, and I do have to quote Jennifer Gillivan, who's the CEO of the IWK Foundation, uh, because she said this, and I'm sure other people have said it, but she said it so well. And she said, you know, youth are 25% of our population, but they're 100% of our future. So we need to invest in them in all areas.
2: Though there is no single solution to the problem, Research in a specific area of early childhood development is showing promise in its ability to support children and youth through this difficult time. It's an area that our education system and communities can invest in, and families can incorporate into their routines with little or no cost. Play.
1: When we look in the literature too, uh, there's a lot of literature talking about how play is central to children's health and development. So, While some people will recognize that play could be frivolous or not as important as other aspects, um, in terms of the early years, it's actually probably the most central important thing that children really need to develop optimally.
2: This is Dr. Michelle Stone, an Associate Professor of Kinesiology at Dalhousie University. Her research focuses on enhancing children's opportunities for physical activity, physical literacy, and active play. Michelle knows the term fiscal literacy may be hard for people to understand, but is actually quite simple and can be broken down into three components. First, physical competence.
1: So their fundamental movement skills, like their, um, you know, walking and running and hopping and balancing and throwing and jumping and all the different ways that they can move their own their own body.
2: The second part is confidence.
1: So a child's confidence in their own abilities. Um, and their motivation to engage in different activities in a variety of different environments.
2: The last domain is their knowledge and understanding of the value of physical activity for a healthy lifestyle.
1: You know, if you think about outdoor play, if you give children opportunities to play in a way that they self-direct their play, they're going to move their bodies in different ways. So it gives them a chance to develop those movement skills and the physical competence side of things they start to gain confidence because their skills are improving and they're succeeding in situations and because of their confidence and self-efficacy they can be more motivated to kind of play and move outdoors in a variety of environments and then over time they start to understand the benefits like that knowledge and understanding of the value of activity so all of that really kind of encompasses physical literacy and it's not something that just happens at one point. Like it's, all, it's, it's continual. It's throughout the lifespan. So it's something that we're constantly kind of striving towards and we're trying to kind of further develop and, I guess, improve upon.
2: According to Michelle, a child's ability to develop physical literacy is very much linked to their mental health, especially during the early years of development.
1: You know, when kids are allowed opportunities to play in the early years, you know, they, they are able to have opportunities to be creative and problem solve and invent and create and experiment and challenge themselves and learn from failure and be resilient and all of those things. Right. And so I think when you have those opportunities, you are able, as I said, to learn a little bit more about yourself, learn how to work with others, you develop empathy, you learn how to self-regulate, control your emotions. Um, those are all things that are going to help support a child's mental health And so if we continue those experiences throughout the early years then you're gonna you're develop you're developing those milestones or developing the capacity um, to kind of deal with stressful situations or deal with challenges or know how to recover from failure right or know how to solve problems and, you know, negotiate or work with others. All those are going to help support better mental health outcomes.
2: Even before the pandemic, there was a term coined in Michelle's line of work that was becoming top of mind, but is even more of a concern now. Play deprivation, referring to the declining rates of play and physical activity among kids.
1: And I think what we're seeing now is really the negative effects of play deprivation over time, Um outdoor play advocates like myself trying to get this, you know, awareness of play back into our community. So that heightened understanding of just why it's so important and how we need to kind of change our systems and settings to really reintegrate play back into children's lives and give it the attention and the significance that it deserves. I mean, I think there's been concern for a long, long time now. And when children are play-deprived and they don't have the opportunity to gain these skills, then we see children not being sure of themselves, doubting themselves. And so they could be anxious or it could lead to depression or, you know, they're not having opportunities to kind of figure things out on their own and direct their own experiences. And so they don't have that self-confidence. And they're not able to learn how to deal with failure. And so, you know, that, that resilience, that ability to bounce back suffers. So that's what I found to be most Really fascinating and interesting was reading like these connections between play deprivation over time and just the whole host of, you know, challenges that we're seeing in in ongoing generations, particularly around mental health now.
2: For experts, concerns over low levels of physical activity and play experienced by children have only become heightened since the onslaught of the pandemic sparking multiple studies analysing the impact of lockdown on kids and their physical activity. One such study was led by Michelle's colleague, Dr. Sarah Moore of Dalhousie University.
1: Participation um, funded uh, some research where parents across the country were asked to fill out various questionnaires that got at the 24-hour movement guidelines. Um, and so, you know, Sarah and her colleagues asked um, parents on you know, were children meeting the activity recommendations, for example, and there's different recommendations based on different ages. Um, how much time were they spending outdoors? What factors actually facilitated outdoor time or presented barriers to outdoor time? And so she did find that even though we were pretty dire in terms of the you know, amount of children meeting um, 24-hour movement guidelines before the pandemic, it had declined. And she since done a follow-up paper to explore what's happened six months later, and the levels are pretty much stable, I believe. So they're still down um, from what they were pre-pandemic. So it's showing us that, you know, as a result of the pandemic and all the pressures and the restrictions, particularly in the beginning that we saw on outdoor play spaces with playgrounds being shut down and just, you know, not having opportunities for families, not having opportunities to allow their children to access safe play spaces, that would have obviously impacted their movement behaviours.
2: As part of her work to address play deprivation and get kids active pre and post-pandemic, Michelle has been investigating more accessible methods of integrating play into children's lives. One commonly known as loose parts play. And it's exactly what it sounds like. Children playing with random parts of whatever they can get their hands on.
1: We had heard a little bit about how loose parts, these kind of, you know, um, materials with no fixed purpose could support aspects of fiscal literacy development, but there was really no research on the topic. So we didn't, no one really, very few people understand the term loose parts, but we said, well, it's the way we always used to play. Like we just gather up stuff in our neighborhood and put it together and play with it in creative ways and so when we showed them examples they're like oh okay yeah we have tires we have rope or buckets or whatever we can donate those and they just immediately got it because they would you know relay such valuable experiences that they had out in the outdoors independent playing with materials they found in nature just things that were scattered around and and it's it's inclusive Right. And so that's another thing, you know, it's it, 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 it's very accessible. It's inclusive. At least part can be anything that you imagine it to be. Right. So anything that doesn't have a fixed purpose and it can be natural materials or it can be manufactured materials. And so the main thing is just trying to get a diversity of materials into a space.
2: Before the pandemic, Michelle and her team led a community event in Halifax as part of her Summer of Play project a knowledge-sharing strategy aimed at increasing awareness of the benefits of outdoor loose parts play to children's physical literacy and overall health. Involvement and reception from the community, including local businesses, was overwhelmingly positive.
1: So we had a lot of local businesses donate a lot of materials for that day, and so we had cardboard boxes, we had tyre, rope, um, twine, duct tape, scissors, buckets, balls... Wooden planks and wooden pallets, milk crates, tree cookies, um, bike tires and tubes, hula hoops, frisbees, kitchen items, you name it. Like anything that you could think of under the sun was there. Um, And these kids created these incredible forts and just used their imagination in so many ways. And we really did see the value of the Loose Parts play to children's physical literacy, which was kind of our central kind of goal, you know, with this project. Um, So... Yeah, pretty incredible events.
2: Michelle has since been focused on integrating loose parts play into other community settings, such as the home, childcare centres, before and after school settings, and hopefully eventually schools post-pandemic. So far, her research is adding to a growing body of evidence, stating that child-directed play has benefits for children's development in key areas such as numeracy and spatial recognition, fine motor skills, language and word knowledge, cognitive skills and memory, and social and emotional learning.
1: So we've seen amazing examples from our play project where the children have been brought out of their shell. Maybe they were those quiet children who found it hard to kind of play with others. They didn't feel like they were invited into the play. And through these parts, they were able to work with others and develop relationships. Um, We even heard examples, and this was really a cool finding, was that, it supported language development in children who where English, wasn't their first language. And so parents were actually saying as a result of the loose parts play, my child's coming home and their English has improved because again, they're being brought into play with other children and they're having to learn how to communicate, you know, to contribute to that play experience. So it's just, it's fascinating when you see it and you hear what can actually come out of least parts play. And I, you know, we were able to see that um, from the educators' perspective when we asked some questions around did outdoor least parts play facilitate aspects of physical literacy or other health and development? They talked about, yes, it helped children learn movement skills, or they develop confidence or competence. They're more motivated to play, or so we see we saw from this qualitative data that there was a real value to outdoor loose parts play in supporting movement skills and other aspects of physical literacy and then just health in general Um, so we've got some really strong data out of that project we've got you know some lessons learned on what went well with the project and what didn't that we're trying to (laughs) take um you know keep keep uh, mindful of and integrate into our our new project Um, but i suspect that we are going to see you know, similar benefits in school-aged children and youth.
2: Supporting children's mental health and well-being as we collectively recover from the COVID-19 pandemic will be a complex journey requiring the participation of families, our school system, healthcare system, policymakers, and entire communities. We need experts like Dr. Alexa Bagnall and Dr. Michelle Stone who are dedicating their time and energy to not only the research, but the ways in which their results can be integrated into and impact society so we can make better decisions tomorrow. Looking ahead, though there is cause for concern, both doctors are optimistic about the resilience of the younger generations.
1: But I do think kids are pretty resilient and they will find ways to play how they wanna play in the environment that they're in and they tend to bounce back pretty quickly, I think. Not to say we shouldn't be mindful of their mental health and how it's been compromised, but I've seen a lot of real resilience from kids and their ability to kind of process the pandemic and adhere to restrictions and
0: rules and just kind of go with it. So one of the things I've been most impressed by in the pandemic is you know, our population's resiliency, but particularly our, our kids. So children and teens that we work with and their ability to rise to some challenges, some difficulties, problem solve, get supports. You know, I, I, I'm in awe sometimes and it's pretty inspiring. And I think our kids coming from this will not only be more grateful and have gratitude about some of the things that maybe we took a bit for granted before, but they're also gonna be more resilient because this was a big challenge that faced our whole world uh, they will not be a kid who's not going to remember it. Uh, there won't be an adult that won't remember it either, and uh, it changes us. And it also gives us confidence. Like, well, it wasn't wasn't as bad as the pandemic, or. Nothing could be as bad, you know, some of that kind of talk, but also just knowing and confident that you've faced something pretty big before. So this one, maybe it looks a little smaller in comparison to maybe some of the other challenges you've had to face in the last year. So those kind of resiliency things, uh, you know, knowing you've got the skills and coping tools. It's not that you don't have adversity, it's that you know or have confidence that you can actually cope with it. That's the stuff that we want to build in kids. and. Uh, You know, would I wish this on anyone and would I ever want to go through this again? No, but there will be some uh, good things that come from it in terms of our own uh, inner abilities to, to cope with stuff like that adversity when it hits us.
2: Thank you for listening to Beyond Research, brought to you by Research Nova Scotia. For more information, visit researchns.ca. My name's Rhys Waters, and we'll see you next time.